So first of all, hello everybody and a very warm welcome to our debate uh, which the London School of Economics and Political Science is kindly hosting for us. This debate is one of four which we are recording for BBC Radio 4 under the title Glass Half Full in which optimists and pessimists put their point of view on topical issues. And today, we are debating the proposition that a population of 9 billion is sustainable. Okay, so Fee Glover is um, your entirely accomplished um, chairwoman here and presenter. And there will be two main speakers and three witnesses. And this program will be broadcast uh, on Radio 4 at 8 o'clock in the evening on Wednesday, April the 19th, and it will be repeated on the Saturday after that, the 22nd, at 10.15 in the evening. We'll record here 50, 55 minutes, and after the recording, there will be time uh, for questions from the floor. And that whole recording, including your questions, will, we hope, be available as a podcast on the LSE website um, from April the 19th onwards. After the programme, two of our panel will be available to sign their books, which are for sale. Um, Johan Norberg's book is called Progress, Ten Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. And Sarah Conley's book is called One Child, Do We Have a Right to More? So very, um, you know, contentious um, material in those books. And I'm sure what you'll hear this evening will encourage you to go out and, and buy copies. Please turn off your mobile phones. If you'd like to tweet after the show, our hashtag is our full, sorry, our four glass full. So please enjoy the event. And when Fee asks for a little bit of audience participation, don't worry, you don't have to get up out of your seat. All we ask is that you shout up and shout loud. But first of all, please, if you wouldn't mind, let's have a round of applause. So I know that uh, usually when someone says there's audience participation, many people suddenly realise they've got a pressing engagement somewhere else and they want to head for the nearest exit. Uh, it's nothing that's going to make you squirm. But basically, um, although we're recording this in front of you, the live studio audience, we do have to bear in mind uh, that we will have millions of listeners at home and because we're indulging a bit of a thought experiment with this programme, we need you to basically be the ears on the ground for the audience at home. So that will make more sense as the programme goes along, and you really don't have to do very much, but I'm going to give you a very simple set of instructions, and it would absolutely make our evening if you followed those. There's a gentleman in a white shirt there just looking at me thinking, what is she talking about? What is going on? It's not complicated. Uh, what I'd first like to do, because some of the panel you won't hear from until a little bit later in the programme and I always think it's a little bit rude if you don't know who everybody is so if we could just work our way down if you could just say who you are and uh, what you represent that would be very helpful for our audience starting please Robin. I am Robin Maynard and I am director of an organisation called Population Matters. Johan please. My name is Johan Norberg and I'm a freelance author and documentary filmmaker. Sarah. 
My name is Sarah Conley. I am a philosopher from the United States. David. My name is David Spiegelhalter. I'm a professor of statistics at Cambridge University. And Joel. Uh, my name is Joel Cabazzo. I uh, work for a, a consultancy in the city of London. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so I know that you've already done a little round of applause. To be honest, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't loud enough. <laughs> it wasn't warm enough. Could we do it all again? I love whoever it was who whooped. <laughs> We'd like more whoops. Okay, so I'm going to start the recording now. Uh, it is a really serious instruction to have your mobile phones off just because it does actually interfere with our broadcast and we'll get horrible little humming sounds and all of that kind of stuff. So we'd be really, really grateful if you'd actually obey. Right, is everybody ready? Okay, here we go. You all ready on the panel? Yeah, okay, right, 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 right. here we go. Hello and welcome, glass half empty, glass half full, two very different ways of looking at the world. And in this series, we explore how our outlook transforms the world so that the same issues can look radically different depending on where you're standing. And here's a thought for you. An optimist thinks this is the very best time to be alive on this planet. A pessimist fears that to be true. And whilst you unpick that one a little bit, I want to put tonight's topic before you, which is all about being on this planet along with quite a few others. Tonight at the London School of Economics and Political Science, in front of a studio audience and in front of your ears at home or wherever you're listening, we discuss the proposition that a global population of 9 billion people is sustainable. 9 billion at least is the projection for the global population by the middle of this century. It currently stands at 7.4 billion. So we've got experts in two very different corners. One believes that we have the resources and the ingenuity to meet the demands of so many people and the other thinks that we're out of control. We also have three expert witnesses who we'll be asking to join our discussions and most importantly we have you listening and we want to try and examine how we think about issues like this, how we come by our gloomy or our cheerful outlook. So before we begin we need to hear what our audience here thinks. So who thinks that the glass is half full, that a population of 9 billion people on this planet is sustainable? If you think that, can you shout full? Okay. Those of you who think the glass is half empty and think we can't possibly all live on this planet in such huge numbers, can you shout empty? Okay, so the empty carries it at the beginning of the program. We're going to come back to that question at the end of the discussions, and all we ask is that in the meantime, like a basking shark of curiosity, you hoover up all of our discussions and digest them in a very simple way. So it's time to introduce our optimist tonight. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, a documentary maker and best-selling author. His most recent book is called Progress, 10 Reasons to look forward to the future. So, you're definitely a dyed-in-the-wool enlightened liberal optimist now, but weren't you actually a little bit anarchic at one stage in your life? Oh, that's true. As a young student, I was a member of an anarchist group and a, really a card-carrying member of the good old days group who wanted to smash everything modern. But I guess it turned out well in the end. 
Okay, do you think that informs your, that your standpoint now, that feeling that you can just break it all and do something different? Well, in, in a way, everything that I'm now arguing against were positions that I used to share. So, obviously, I've, I've gone through them quite, for quite some time now. Okay, so we should believe you is what you're saying as well. We'll try. Our pessimist is Robin Maynard, a seasoned campaigner and strategist, currently chief executive of the charity Population Matters. Now, that organization believes that balancing our numbers with what the earth can sustain benefits us all. So, Robin, have you always been pessimistic about this issue? Uh, well, it's, it's grown on me, to be honest, rather like the population. Um, I started off as a young campaigner at Friends of the Earth in the 1980s, and our mantra was simply to talk about consumption. We would never talk about population at all. That was a taboo subject. And I understood why that was, because of the history, etc., etc. And I understood that it was politically correct, but I didn't think it was intellectually honest. And I've become even more uh, committed to that viewpoint since the statistics I grew up with have got harder and harder for the earth to bear. Is it just about statistics for you? Has it been a little bit of a journey through your own life experiences as well? Yes, it has. I mean, I've, 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 I've been fortunate enough to travel the world reasonably and not always sustainably. Obviously, I've flown, etc., etc. But I've seen a number of countries which are struggling with development and where the pressures on the environment are very great and where particularly people are suffering from overpopulation pressures and pressures of, of overconsumption in this country for demanding things like palm oil in Indonesia. I suppose, personally, what really affected me was having a daughter. And I love my daughter, as any parent would and, and does. And I want the future to be as good for her as me and better and I find it very hard reading the statistics I see and talking to the people I do that that is going to be the case. But I'm going to do my damnedest, and I hope many other people are, to make, make that come about. And we can. Okay. Okay, okay, we can feel the passion from both of you. So because the programme is called Glass Half Full, because we are eternally optimistic at Radio 4, I think it shows in all of our output, we're going to give Johan the opening pitch. So tell us why you feel positive about population growth. One of the things that has informed my point of view is travelling around the world, and especially to uh, poor countries that are now developing. I just uh, flew in from southern Africa, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm in countries like that is to visit schools, which I did now as well. Uh, visited schools, young girls and boys who got to learn to read and write and do maths and take their first steps into a bigger world. Um, for the first time, and really the first generation where almost everybody can do that. Uh, their grandparents in that generation, almost none of them got to learn to read and to write. One of the boys was especially happy because he just got a baby sister, uh, the first girl in that family, so he was very cheerful. And one thing occurred to me then. Isn't it strange that when a baby pig is born in a country, per capita GDP in that nation rises. But when a human baby is born, the per capita GDP falls. Because when a human is born, that's not seen as a resource or someone who can produce things. It's seen as a drain on resources. Why is that? Well, that's an attitude we've had to mankind for a long time. And in science, since uh, at least Thomas Robert Malthus 200 years ago began to explain that this cannot last. We cannot have a, an improvement in people's uh, lifestyle and their real wages and so on, because they'll only 
use and consume those resources and then there will be less of it in the future and this won't last. Well, back in that day, when he said that, England was the richest country on the planet, but 40% of the population here lived in extreme poverty. Life expectancy was shorter than 40 years. Now compare that to southern Africa today. Those numbers in England, the richest country on the planet 200 years ago, were worse than they are in sub-Saharan Africa today. That baby girl who was just born, she has a greater chance of living a life free from poverty, greater chance of being literate, and she stands a greater chance of reaching her retirement day than children in all previous generations had of reaching their fifth birthday. So something dramatic have, have happened in those last 200 years. Progress, human progress, increase in, in both economic and social progress has been much faster than population growth. And it has been the fastest in these last 25 years. 25 years ago, if people had, when they thought that we might be 2.5 billion more people 25 years later, well, they would have said we would be much poorer, with much worse access to food and to safe water. But what happened during those 25 years? Chronic undernourishment has been reduced by 40%. Child mortality and illiteracy has, have been halved. Extreme poverty have been, has been reduced by three quarters. So that every minute for those 25 years, 100 people rose out of extreme poverty. 285,000 people got access to safe water every day during those 25 years. Yes. So basically the opposite happened of what Malthus and all the pessimists about world population thought. Why is that? I think it's because people aren't just consumers of resources. If we look around ourselves in this room, we can clearly see that there's a limit to how many people we can be in this room, because space is limited here. And that's the same thing in the animal kingdom. If we have more a bird of prey. It results in fewer rabbits to eat and then in fewer birds in the long run. But that's not... It's easy to assume that the world works like that, that mankind works like that. But that's not the case because we don't just come into the world with a mouth to feed but also with hands to produce things and brains with which we can think of new solutions to problems. And that's what's happening right now. The greatest progress we'll ever see, we have ever seen, and we'll see more of it in the future. I think we'll see a future where we create more resources. We are farming fish, we are growing meat, we develop draft-resistant crops, we desalinate water, we can recycle anything. We recycle 70% of the steel that we, we have. We can have totally clean energy and even take CO2 out of the atmosphere if we think that people, they're not the problem. They are the solution to our problem, and we should value each and every one of them at least as much as we value piglets when they are born. Thank you. But, Joanne, I could find, uh, as a journalist, a dozen bad news stories about all of those things that you've just mentioned, and I could do that with just 12 simple clicks of a mouse, couldn't I? So isn't it just your interpretation that you've put progress and you've talked about chance and opportunity as a layer on top of the facts, but actually, for an awful lot of people, that means a miserable life or no life at all? Yes, you can do that, and I do that. When I open my cell phone in the morning, I'm, I'm terrified about what happens in the world, because if it bleeds, it leads. Bad news sells. All the awful things that happen anywhere on the planet, in an era of global and social media, that'll top the news cycle everywhere around the world. So now we can read about the 
the risk of famine in, in Africa yes, right now. Yes, and you can read about CO2 emissions. Yeah. You can read about every single thing that you've put in your yeah. list. You'll be able to find a news story that says, actually, we're going to hell in a handcart. And those things are true. They are happening, and we should worry about them and do some, something about it. But that's also why we need data and history to inform ourselves of what has happened with those problems before. Uh, for example, with famine... Uh, during the last 60 years, chronic undernourishment has been reduced from 50% of the world population to 10% today. It's not enough. We need to do more. Uh, it's awful that half a million people risk uh, death during this decade. But during previous decades, from the 1920s till the 1960s, 15 million people died from famine despite the fact that the world population was so much smaller. So we have to understand that those bad news are there, we have to do something about it, but we need the context to understand what solutions works and which doesn't. Do you enjoy being the voice of optimism? And can I be very cheeky and very cynical so early in the programme and say that it puts you on a certain circuit, it sells a certain amount of books, it's an interesting position to hold at the moment in a world of doom? Well, actually, you should tell my book agent, because he tells me that, uh, look, we can, we can sell this book, and a few people will be interested, but if you give me a book about how the world is coming to an end, I could make you a rich man. So I think, unfortunately, that bad news sells, because probably evolutionary, anything that's risky seems like a threat to our survival, and we have to focus on that. That's why news media is filled with murder, homicide, famine, and war, even though when we look at the statistics, homicide rates have been half since the 1980s. Uh, we have about a quarter of war deaths today, as we had when I grew up. Uh, you wouldn't assume that from, from paying attention to the news media, and they know what sells. Well, we will come back to your optimistic spirit, but we are going to hear from the other corner. Uh, Robin, I think that optimism can be infectious, actually. It's nice to hear people talk about a safe future for the planet. Uh, but why do you think that pessimism is actually a more helpful way to look at our future? Uh, well, I think pessimism is a, is a springboard to optimism. If we don't confront the facts, we won't actually be able to deal with the are issues. Are you denying already that you are a pessimist? Because that's really not going to work for well, us. Well, I, I am a pessimist in terms of how the world reacts to this issue. But if I didn't have a streak of optimism tucked away in that pessimism, I wouldn't be able to do my okay. day job. Please don't streak for us yet. <laughs> we would like the pessimism, please. Fine, thank you. So firstly, it is dangerously complacent to assume that our total population will actually peak at 9 billion. The, the statistics that these figures come from are from the United Nations, the best accepted source. And they are projections. They are projections. So the 9.3 billion is the UN's median projected figure by 2050. But the range is enormous, a range from a low of 8.7 billion to a high of 10.8 billion by 2050. For the end of the century, the range is even greater, a low of 7.3 billion, lower than we currently are, to a high of 16.6 billion. And that range and variance is based on a whole range of factors. But one simple factor to be aware of, if the overall fertility rate across the world, the average fertility rate across the world, was just half a child above the UN's estimate, then we hit 16 billion. Half a child lower, and we could stabilise our population at under 7 billion. But these figures, they, they, they act upon people, on politicians and upon the media, and they give people this sort of fatalistic assumption that it's going to be 9 or 10 billion and there's nothing we can do about it. And in particular, it gives politicians a very convenient excuse 
to avoid tackling and talking about a difficult long-term problem, which raises some very uncomfortable questions about our lifestyles, about North and South relations, about our colonial history as a nation, and about, a mora- and about the morality of the market economy. There is also a sort of assumption that actually, don't worry about it, because all these countries which have rising populations at the moment are going to stabilise. They're going to go from high fertility and high mortality to low fertility and low mortality. And as Johan says, everything will be okay, development will happen, we will go through transition to progression. It doesn't happen like that everywhere at the moment. And it is not happening in sub-Saharan Africa, and it is not happening in East Africa, which is facing the worst famine of this century century is what the UN aid agencies were saying recently. So we're facing some really serious problems. And in any case, at 7.4 billion, not even 9 billion, we are already in global overshoot. So we human beings are using up the Earth's available renewable resources of natural capital at a rate of 1.6 times the planet's ability to produce them. So fish stocks, clean water, fertile soils, etc., etc. By July or August of this year, we've used up the Earth's ability to provide that for us. When I say we, I mean some of us. Not everyone, because if everyone on Earth were to seek to live as you and I do in this room here then we would need two to three Earths to deliver those capital, natural capital resources to give people a fair share and an improvement in their standard of living, as they justly deserve. But it's impossible, because we've only got one Earth. So the mantra that used to come out from my colleagues at Friends of the Earth was, we must consume less and allow others to consume more. The jargon is contraction and convergence. It sounds great, except that it isn't that simple, and it simply isn't happening. If you think transition to lower populations is difficult, just try consumption transition. It just isn't happening everywhere, except perhaps in the odd off-the-grid eco-commune somewhere in deepest Somerset. It is, people are continuing to consume more. And you can look at some of the studies. We're constantly told we're going to live in this weightless world, that actually we've become more efficient with the use of resources. We're recycling, etc., etc. The buzz phrase is dematerialization. So redu- reduced re- resource use will mean surely there'll be plenty to go around for everyone. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology has just produced a very interesting study looking at 60 different materials, key materials we use. And they found that despite huge increases in efficiency and, and the, the uh, compactness of design, we are not reducing resource use. It's actually increasing because as consumers, we want more and more of whatever it is that's produced. I mean, do you remember those old mobile phones that yuppies used to have? They were the size of a brick, you know, they're little wafers now. But silicon use, although it's gone down in individual transistor size, it has gone up in overall use by 345%. But those very same people who've made all those incredible advances in technology are the people who Johan thinks can actually solve the problems. And isn't there evidence that in this kind of renaissance of technology and, in a sense, a renaissance of ideas at the moment, that we would be able to find something that could actually turn back those tides? Well, the tides are fast approaching the shore, And I really hope that technology will catch the tide of destruction and the the, uh, the depletion of our interplanetary boundaries upon which our, our, our life support systems are sustained. But I think it's a really close-run thing. And the more, the more of us there are 
consuming more, the harder it is for that technological last rope as we're falling off the precipice to save us. So it gets tighter, and I can, I can go on and tell you a little bit more about that if you'll allow me to. I'll allow you about one minute on that, Thank and then you. I'd like to challenge you on Malthus as well, Excellent. just to warn you. Yes. So we are, breaching into, we are breaching planetary boundaries, and climate change is a key one. So if we are to stay within the 1.5 to 2 degrees uh, Celsius temperature rise that we need if we are to avoid catastrophic climate change, uh, we've really got to get moving because NASA's latest statistics are that actually we've lost a decade. We are going to hit 1.5 degree threshold. It's going to be breached within five years. And we've got a 50% chance of staying below two degrees in under 30 years. So all those boundaries are getting tighter. And as they get tighter, as our climate change uh, gets more uh, challenging for us, our numbers as consumers and greenhouse gas emitters rises. I think the final thing I really wanted to talk about was something, it was a statistic, and we can talk about statistics and bat them about, and there's alternative facts, etc. But one which shocks me to the core is that 10,000 years ago, on Earth, we made up 1% of the total mammalian weight and biomass present. 99% of all other mammals were wild mammals. That figure today is almost entirely reversed. We have reduced all other wild mammal species to less than 1.5% of the world's biomass. We, us, our livestock, our domestic li domesticated livestock and our pets, account for 98% of everything else living on Earth in mammalian form. So we've rent the rich tapestry of global biodiversity into remnants. And the declining figures are, are such that scientists now talk about us, humans, as entering the Anthropocene age. We have our own epoch of, of extinction. And it's a mass extinction which deprives us just, you know, not just of those rich resources, the utility and the functionality of nature, $33 trillion worth of ecosystem services a year, but it, it takes away something innate, I think, in us as human beings. It's something almost spiritual in terms of our connection to nature. And I fear that we, we will be left as an increasingly lonely last primate on a planet that is pretty uninhabitable, uninhabitable and pretty a miserable existence, personally. Can I challenge you about predictions, though? Because Johan brought up the point of uh, Malthusian theory and the fact that the precipice that he thought everybody was going to fall off didn't turn out to be a precipice at all. So how can you be so sure that now, and he was writing at the end of the 18th century, how can you be so sure now that what you see is going to actually come true? Why not be more optimistic about humans' ability to solve the problems? Because we have a lot less um, wriggle room and, and, and capacity for the Earth's ecosystems to absorb the impacts we're imposing upon it than Malthus uh, could foresee in 1798. And, and yes, indeed, you know, technology improved tremendously, and he certainly didn't foresee the Green Revolution, where fantastic scientists like Norman Borlaug um, created uh, high-yielding varieties, short-stemmed wheat, which, which boosted yields tremendously. But actually, we're now seeing limits to those. And if you have read Borlaug, as I have, what he said was he was creating breathing space for us to stabilize our population. He didn't say it would be a cornucopia that would be endless. He said, I'm giving you some time to sort yourselves out. And we haven't done that. You head up Population Matters, so I'm going to ask you exactly the same question that I put to Johan. Uh, isn't it actually in your interest to be this 
this doom monger because you can't really be the chief executive of a body that has a belief and say, well, actually, we might be able to find something good over here. Um, I, I don't think that is my job at all, actually. My, my job, uh, as we're doing now, which is fantastic, is to get people to talk about an issue which people have seen as a taboo and have not wanted to talk about for decades, for some understandable reasons. But also because if we can talk about it, we can understand what we can do about it. And it is not a hopeless... I know I'm meant to be the pessimist, but it is not a hopeless situation. Those statistics about half a child more, half a child less, which seem rather bizarre, but it just shows how those variables, that range of figures, could be adjusted if only we would talk about it, if only we would enable women everywhere to have the right to make the choice of how many children they have and to give them the health care that enables them to do so safely. We're going to come on to exactly that, and I don't know whether either of those pictures, though, have simply keyed into how you, our audience at home and here at the LSE, already think about population issues. Maybe there is something that started to seep into your incumbent position. So whatever the opposite of the phrase, hold that thought is, I'd like to use it. Let yourself be swayed, perhaps by the testimony of our three expert witnesses as well, who I'd like to introduce to you. David Spiegelhalter is a numbers professor at Cambridge University, and Joel Cabazzo is is former director of the African Development Bank. Uh, we also have with us Sarah Conley, who's a professor of philosophy and uh, has some controversial views about population growth. Significantly, her recent book is called One Child, Do We Have a Right to More? And not only is she very pessimistic about current approaches to dealing with it, she also argues that we only have the right to one child. Sarah, what is the moral argument for what initially seems to be a pretty extreme approach? Well, the question, the moral question, is whether we should be able to gamble with other people's futures. So imagine you see a child out in the road and a car is barreling towards it. Looks like it's on a collision course, but you're in your most comfortable chair, you've just gotten a glass of tea, your cat's asleep in your lap, you don't want to get up. And you say, well... Things might turn out okay. You know, the driver might swerve, or the driver might slow down, or maybe it's one of those high-tech driverless cars that automatically avoids obstacles. All of those things are true, but I think we'd all say you don't have a right to just sit there and watch this child get hit by a car. Our present situation with population is not quite the same, For one thing, we're not an observer, we're driving the car. For another, to ask people to give up having more than one child is asking a lot more than saying you should get out of your comfortable chair. But the basic principle is the same. There's something you can give up having more than one child, and you'll still live a very good life. You can have a perfectly good life with no children, but with one child. And in doing that, you make it much more probable that you save all these people. Now, is a government regulation the way to do that? Because that is what I argue for in my book. Of course, it's not the best way. Ideally, we wouldn't need government regulations for anything. We would just say, hey, don't steal, and everyone would go, good point, I won't. If we can do that, if we can reduce population without government, I'm absolutely in favor of it. And I do think, to that end, we should educate people more. It's very unpopular because business tends to be against lowering the population because they think they won't 
grow enough, but we could educate people about the need. We could make contraception easy to get, free and local for everyone.、Uh, we could provide incentives. We could give you a tax break if you have only one child. We can try all of those things one at a time or all at once. If they don't work, though, I do think that having more than one child now, at this time when overpopulation threatens so much, is something you don't have a right to do. And I do think that means a government regulation would not violate your right, depending how it's done. What、uh, seems the most practical thing, since we know how many children people have, is sensitive to finances, is to get involved with money. You know, fine people if they have more than one child. Does that mean the rich can have as many as they want? No, you'd have to have a sliding scale. But you could do that. Now, of course, it's not attractive. It's not attractive to have the government thinking about how many children you have. If we can avoid it, let's do that. But if it comes to that, if education isn't enough, and the availability of contraception isn't enough, and if incentives aren't enough, then yeah, part of the government's job isn't just to look at people who are here now and say, you know, après nous le déluge, we don't care what happens next. Government is supposed to be looking ahead. And、But so, so I think in this if, case they could. What if government isn't the ultimate thing that people want to be answerable to? What if it's more about their faith? What if it's more about their belief system? What if it's more just about hope? Why would why would we only see the economics of a family as opposed to all of the other things? Well. I think we do see those things, and we do want what is best for our children. Sometimes we think in the short term rather than in the long term. So I think in the short term, sometimes the financial method is effective. But if we don't need it, if people are thinking long term, then I think they would voluntarily say, "Look, yeah, I love kids, but I'm not just thinking about this child. I'm thinking about my grandchild, my great grandchild. What am I giving them?" And they would be guided by that. Has there really been a successful one-child policy or mandatory government control of fertility anywhere? Because you could point to some economic arguments in China, but equally you could look at Peru and their sterilisation program of the many indigenous poor people, which. Was repulsive and eventually、mm-hmm. overturned. You could look at infanticide in India. You could look at backstreet abortions. The ramifications of this are really painful in people's lives. Has there been a successful program? Depends what you mean by successful. Obviously, there have been programs like China that reduce the number of children born. However, I wouldn't regard it as successful. For one thing, China is. Not a democracy. I'm in favor of democracy. Two, although they did use fines, they also, upon occasion, used invasions of the body, kidnapping people, sterilizing them, forcing to have an abortions. I'm not in favor of that. So I think the upside of your question is that we haven't really given it a good try.、Uh, we don't want a program that targets certain populations, like indigenous people or poor people. It has to be the same for everyone. We don't want a program that, you know, chops off people's heads. You know, that invades the body. But we don't need that. All the evidence is that 
smaller methods like fines、uh, work more effectively or as effectively as the draconian methods, and that's what we want to do, and we can do it. Do you have children yourself? I do. How many do you have? Four. No. <laughs>、um, this is an ad hominem argument, which, for those of you who've forgotten philosophy, means attacking the messenger, not the message. It, it openly is. But do you know what? But, this is a program. No, no, I, I put my、that. hands up to it. But this is a program where we're trying to work out where people come from、right. in their beliefs and how that actually affects the way that we look at statistics. And facts. So no, you don't have to answer it, Sarah. But oh, I'm, I'm happy to.、Uh, and in fact, if people attack me, it's because my argument is so good. Okay. Yeah, I have two children.、Uh, they aren't children anymore. They're turning 29 and 26.、Uh, my almost 26-year-old tells people he's the reason I wrote the book. It's not true. <laughs> Uh, back when I was having kids, which was 1981, and I can do this, 1988, 1991, I thought at that point that replacement value, two kids for two parents, was enough. You know that that's all we needed to do to stabilize the population, because, as my mathematical friends told me, I'm mathematically illiterate. It turned out it wasn't true. At this particular point in time, having two kids. Per two adults does not stabilize the population, for reasons I think he's going to explain. Demographic momentum. So, yeah, I did the wrong thing. Now, at this point, do I wish I didn't have the 26-year-old? Obviously not. But the pertinent question is how I feel about my third child. That is the one I didn't have. I feel fine. Once you have a child, of course, you don't want to get rid of them. But we're talking about not having children to begin with, not going around bumping off children that exist. Yeah. So thank you for answering that question, Joanne. Do you think that、uh, that that a mandatory government control of the population is ever something that could fit into the way that you view the world?、Mm, no. And if you're asking for a personal、uh, reason for why I have that view, it's I'm I'm the little brother. I'm the one. I'm, I'm the one who would have been banned in that kind of society. I think there are some choices that should be left to people, to individuals, to families to decide. And I, I really think the family size is one of them. And I think it's. But it's more than that. I think the problem is, had those ideas been around, had governments done that 200 years ago,、uh, to really stop the growth in world population, we wouldn't have lived these good, extraordinary lives that we do now, because. Knowledge, science, technology—it's cumulative. We need more people, more eyeballs looking at problems, more brains thinking of solutions to that. If we would have had half the world population of today, well, would it have been Louis Pasteur, or would it have been Thomas Edison that we would have been without? I don't know, but it would have been the germ theory of disease, or it would have been electricity that we would have been without. So, is it just looking at people as liabilities like that? Don't we miss everything that we contribute—the human ingenuity? Robin, does anything that Sarah say does anything that Sarah has said chime with your gloomier view of the world? I was getting more worried about Johann's、uh, algorithm. I was trying to work out how it was that masses more people would definitely mean there's going to be more brilliant inventions. It just seemed to be statistics, damn statistics, and alternative facts.、Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I, population matters, and personally, myself, I have no truck with coercive 
population control programs. They've been deeply discredited and caused terrible misery and abuses, whether in China or in India. But What but, if they're not coercive? What absolutely, if it's a sense of personal absolutely. responsibility? Absolutely. And the example, one of the great examples in the world is Bangladesh, which in 1970, the total fertility rate, which means how many children a woman would have on average, was seven children. That went down by, t- by today to 2.2. So they've done an incredible job. But they've done it through uh, information, health clinics, uh, moving away from a patriarchal society. They have a lovely slogan which says, uh, no more than two, but one is even better. And, but they can see what's happening. They're like a microcosm of the world. They've got the Sundarbans. They've got, they, in terms of sea level rise, Bangladesh is so vulnerable. They're pressured on either side politically as well. They've had a huge rising population. They had to do something. So in a way, they're like a sort of control experiment for the rest of the, rest of the world. You can do it well if you start doing it in time. And I just think there's one other thing that Sarah raised, which is interesting, because I have a daughter. I love her to bits. And, of course, when she was born, you know, what did I, I just sort of you know, turned into a grinning fool and what this marvellous event, and you know, I was overwhelmed by it. Did I think what it meant for the rest of the world? I probably didn't at that moment. And I think when we have a child, it is seen as a self-regarding act. It's, it shouldn't be anybody else's business, and that's how the UN... Human rights talks about it. It's you know, your right to have a child, have a family. But actually it isn't. It has an impact on other people and on the community. So it should be communicated and talked about as not just a wonderful thing individually, but as an other-regarding act. What is the impact on our community, our society, our planet, and on that child, him or herself, in terms of their future? Is anybody here in the audience slightly changing their position, having heard our first witness so far this evening? Oh, you're a tough crowd, aren't you? Right, let's talk more about sheer numbers then. Uh, David Spiegelhalter is the Winton Professor of Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge University, and he's been crunching the figures so that we don't have to. So, David, we hear a lot of scary statistics. We've heard quite a few in the programme already about this ballooning global population. What is the most accurate picture you can give us? Of course, we can't say for certain what's going to happen, but the UN is projecting, um, you know, over 9 billion by 2050, 11 billion by 2100, and levelling off after that. Uh, That's 50% more than we've got at the moment, and some in the audience will be alive in 2100 to to witness this. But we've got to remember there's huge variability. There's variability, of course, between people and what they do, but massive variability between countries. By 2100, Europe will have shrunk in size, the projection is. There'll be fewer people in Europe. India and China will both have peaked. Um, Asia will contribute half a billion more, but the change will be dominated by Africa, which is set to double to 2.5 billion by 2050, and then another 2 billion to 2100. And some of these changes are are extraordinary. Nigeria to go to 400 million, bigger than America, and then to 750 million by 2100. But many countries at the same time will see a major decline in populations. Eastern Europe, Japan, you know, due to you know, lose a third of their population. So what drives the change? We've heard, of course, it's the rate at which people are born and the rate at which people die. And the crucial issue is what's called this demographic transition. And that's the reduction from what you might call natural fertility, women having six, seven kids, which everyone used to, um, you know, very few, few of whom would survive, down to two per family. Um, you know, essentially, you know, replacement. 
And this happens at different times in different cultures, and it, but it can happen amazingly rapidly without compulsion. Um, in the UK, it happened more than 100 years ago. It took about 40 years. Um, but we've heard already that by empowering women in, to take control of their fertility in Bangladesh, it happened over about 30, 30 years from 5, 6 down to 2. But it, Bangladesh isn't a, you know, is one example. But it happened in Vietnam, country after country it's happened. In Botswana, in, in Africa, 6.4 down to 2.9 in 30 years. The global fertility rate has halved in the last 50 years. This is happening in country after country after country. But the crucial thing is that the UN project much slower decline in fertility in Africa than has been observed in these other countries. And, it's, and they project this won't reach two until the end of the century. Is the global population an ageing one, and is that significant at all? Yeah, I mean, that's the point, that the global population will get older, a lot older. And as has been mentioned, even if we do get down to replacement, it doesn't mean the population starts shrinking. And that's because you know, there's lots more young people than old, and so there's lot, even if they only have two kids, even if they only have one kid, there'll still be more kids being born than there are people dying for, for a while. Um, so just my final, you know, I'd like to ask the audience to think to themselves, what proportion of the world live in societies at the moment with below replacement birth rates? Just think what you think it might be. Actually, it's half the world's population now live in countries which have got below replacement birth rates. So what do you make of the predictions that we've already been talking about tonight, and, and not necessarily the specifics of them, but the notion of prediction, that somehow you know, we can see into the future? No, of course we can't, and there's uncertainty, and the UN admit you know, we can be pretty certain what's going to happen over the next 15, 20, 30 years perhaps, but uh, they say 95% chance it'll be between 9.5 and 13.5 billion in 2100, and roughly a quarter chance it could begin to fall before 2100. And remember, that's the chance that was given to Trump becoming the next president of the United States. Um, You've spotted that as a stat man. Yeah, exactly. And the UN, you know, what's its track record in predictions? Well, interestingly, it's rather good. In 1958, they said there'd be 6 billion by 2000, 40 years later, and they got it almost exactly right. But, amazingly, it's because of two compensating mistakes they made. They were both. They, they made. They were very pessimistic about two things. They thought the fertility rates wouldn't drop so fast as they did, and they thought the life expectancy wouldn't grow as fast as it did. So, by being a bit miserable and pessimistic, they made these two mistakes, which cancelled each other out to make their projection rather good. So, the crucial thing is: is their projection at the moment, particularly about Africa? Is it too pessimistic? As was mentioned, if, if people had half a child less, that'd be 11 billion in 2100, would be less than we've got now. We'd have a smaller, pro, you know, a smaller population. So it seems to me as a statistician, and I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I just love numbers, that um, you know, the, the, in terms of the actual number, it's driven largely by Africa, and the crucial thing is the speed of the, this transition to lower fertility. Is it really going to be as slow as projected? Robin, I think you want to dive in here. I just want to ask David, as, as a mathematician statistician, just to check my maths, and I'm an arts graduate, so it could be a little bit ropey here and there. But um, my understanding is that from the UN currently, the, the global average uh, population increase is about 1.1%. Mm. Oh, if you average across overall, it's, it's yeah. a very low figure, which sounds incredibly reassuring. But I also sort of remember from my sort of schoolboy math something called the sort of rule of 70, that if you want to sort of calculate a growth figure, you divide the percentage into 70. Now, if you do that, 
my maths gives me, it's, uh, I'm sort of 58, 59, that suggests to me that at a 1.1% overall growth rate, the world's population will double in about 63 years. Is that correct? Yeah, but it's, going to, it's not going up at this exponential rate. The, the, that percentage increase is due to decline because it's due to reach, a, um, you know, roughly speaking, a peak you know, round about in a in it, hundred it, years' it, time. It's assumed to reach a peak. Yeah, it's assumed to reach a peak, but all the demographic change, if you, you think of, um, you know, what's happened to fertility rates in, in pretty well, you know, in half the world okay. as, as the countries but have But not in sub-Saharan Africa. No. So Niger, Mali, no, no, Chad are, are breaking and, the DTT five, convenient truth. And a number of African countries are projected to have five times the population and we, and, they and, have at the And moment. my colleague mentioned Trump, and, and you mentioned a, a, a marvellous sort of outside runner, unexpected. President Trump has just ended all uh, foreign aid going for any form of family planning um, because he's playing to a particular audience of pro-lifers. Um, and I don't know whether you saw any of the, the marches that were, were f- featured in the States, but one of them had a, a banner saying, we don't need planned parenthood. And so we could have a very different trend in not just Africa. Now, I think it's unfair to focus on Africa because African consumers are tiny in their footprint compared to the U.S. We need to reduce U.S. citizens, you know, the average U.S. citizens and U.K. Sorry, I'm never going to be able to go to the United States again now. I should be banned immediately. So, so far, we've spent a lot of time talking about half a baby, and now we've got on yeah. to reducing U.S. Well, let, let, it's let a me, vicious yeah, programme yeah. to join Let me give you an through. example. Do you so know what? No, I'm just going to let Johan okay. actually uh, uh, talk to David a bit because um, I, uh, I, I think some of the, the sheer numbers that David is talking about, Johan, they must shake your belief in our ability to survive. These are massive projections. How on earth can we all fit on the planet, let alone still find the things that we need to survive on the planet? Yeah, well, I think there are two incredibly hopeful things that I just heard. The first thing is that this does not sound like a population explosion. This sounds like a health explosion. If I got this right, this did not happen, this increase in population, because we started breeding like rabbits, but because we stopped dying like flies. And then this is what happens. We see this incredible reduction in fertility with this demographic shift, but we live longer lives. The case, it used to be even the upper classes in the richest countries used to bury at least one or two of their children. Now it's the children burying their parents uh, because we now live so much longer, so many fewer children die, and that's incredibly hopeful. Let's not think of that as a problem. The other thing is that this demographic transition is so much more dramatic than anything that people expected when they they made their first uh, projections. And it seems like it's happened uh, voluntarily. Yes, we talk about China's one-child policy, but as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, the same thing happened in Taiwan, the, with the Chinese on Taiwan, without any kind of coercion. We saw the same reduction in Thailand and in so many, many other places. One question. Uh, the professor of international health, Hans Rosling, used to say that there are two billion children in the world today, and according to present trends, there will be two billion children on the planet in 2100. So we've reached peak child. Is that something that you agree with? 
Yes, yeah, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the judgment. And to, just to come back on the idea that you know, it, it does depend crucially on um, the empowerment of women, uh, women's education, and the availability of contraception, or these assumptions that have taken that, that are there. And uh, as you said, this has not involved compulsion in the past, and there's been staggering changes can occur over a single generation in a culture. So it's, uh, it seems to me it's a cultural, an economic, and an empowerment issue. I, I'm, oh, by the way, U.S. is already below replacement. David, you can give a very simple one-word answer well, to this yes. question if you want to. Um, you, you strike me as being uh, possibly the person on the panel who is the most objective, i.e. you're looking at data, you're looking at facts, you're just looking at the math, as they'd say in America. Do you see when people take all the things that you're looking at that you can equally have a pessimistic view and an optimistic view? No, I always say I wouldn't be a decent statistician if I couldn't make a, a number look big or small depending on who, what, what, you wanted, <laughs> what you wanted it to look like. So um, my, oh, you're very clever. My wonderful colleague, um, ex late David Mackay used to say when he was questioned about energy policy and people accused him of being pro-nuclear. He just said, I'm not pro-nuclear, I'm pro-arithmetic. Lovely. Uh, I want to bring in our final expert witness and thank you for bearing with us. It's Joel Cubazo. We've invited you tonight because, as we've heard, much of the debate about population growth centres on the economic benefits that more people can bring. And as a business person, financial journalist and a former director of the African Development Bank, you're very well placed to talk about that link between demographics and economic opportunities. We've talked a bit about Africa's population explosion in the programme um, and also those projections on how much it's going to grow. Do you think that's something to fear or to welcome? I actually believe it is something to welcome greatly. Um, look at the size of Africa. You know, we have space, we have water, we have land. Yes, we do have problems. Some of them are being talked about this evening about um, the famine in certain places. But we talk about famine in three or four countries against 54. You see? And so what is it that we're talking about? Secondly, you, you, you know, the issue of population growth and the worries that there are, we're not the consumers. We're not the ones who are having these issues. You see? We, Africa consumes a tiny bit of all the resources of the globe. The biggest issue, uh, consumers are Europe, the United States, and the developed countries. So basically what, you're try, you know, what people are trying to say is that because you've made all those flights across the United States and across the globe, we in Africa should reduce our populations. And for me, that is absolutely unacceptable. Why should I be paying the price for you? Yes, it's a, it's a very good point to and make. So and can I ask you about the, the nature of the discussion that is often had as well? Do you feel that people fight shy of maybe saying what they really think as well because they fear that it might be culturally offensive or that they will appear to have a position that is offensive? Are we not actually having a decent enough debate where exactly the point that you've just made is made loudly enough? I, th I think so. I mean, the thing is this, that uh, people, I mean, there is this whole notion of political correctness and what you can say in certain uh, areas. But the, the thing to do is to actually understand, uh, you know, that as has been mentioned, education, empowerment, contraception will change the demographics of Africa. 
but that, that change must not come because we're trying to serve you in the West. You know, uh, it, it must come because we believe that it's, you know, that, that, that it's, uh, that that's what we need and that's how it should come about naturally. I'll give you an example. My grandfather had 35 children. You see? I'm going to clap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to clap for his Ter- you know, wife, I wives, ter- I don't know. I would have been a terrible disappointment because I have two. <laughs> My father had seven. And he was educated, came to Britain, was educated in Britain. But none of my brothers and sisters have had more than four. So what I am saying is that in the course of a generation, two generations, without any prompting, there has been this change. So I have two daughters who I love dearly, and I think, you know, the world is your oyster. And for me, I remain an optimist about the world's population and the growth. Those changes will come naturally, not at the behest of anybody. However, at the moment, is population an issue in Africa? Not really, and I don't see why it should be. Is migration an issue in Africa? I mean, are the populations uh, on the move in the same way that we see populations on the move between continents? And are there areas where economies that need a certain type of worker are able to find those type of, that, that type of movement of people? Migration has always been, has, there has always been migration in Africa, sometimes brought about by climate issues, brought about by, by nature. There's always been migration. Here in Europe, you're terribly squeamish about the thought of boats crossing over from Africa and into, and into Europe. And yet, it's a, tiny, it's a very, very tiny figure. This is a country that was sort of running wild because some 20,000 refugees might have been let in against, say, a million in Germany. My country of Uganda is receiving 2,000 refugees from southern Sudan every single day, and yet we're one of the poorest countries. And what do we have? We've got land, we've got food. You, saw that you will have seen these pictures on BBC television. We are absorbing Africa's migration issues and the troubles that they are. We haven't complained. And so what are the lessons <laughs> that, the we, lesson that, we, that we should squeamish. learn? Stop thinking that the world should only evolve around you, you know, <laughs> in, in the West, and, and therefore trying to sort of prescribe things to us Africans and what we should do because of the resources that you have used up. Hmm. Robin. <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a totally fair point and one that, that I would endorse. I think it is absolutely outrageous for anybody from uh, well-developed countries to lecture people from poor countries about consumption and resource use. But when we have a discussion about sustainable populations, isn't that really what we're always talking about? Well, it it is and it isn't. I mean, an American um, citizen will consume... You've heard of the, the concept of the global footprint. Their global footprint is like a huge, stomping, great colossus on the earth compared to the little tiny footprint of, 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 of a, a, an individual citizen from Africa. But there are some uncomfortable truths that we have to talk about. That whilst Africa, uh, globally, in terms of its footprint per person, is so small compared to ours or the US, and in fact the footprint per capita has actually reduced over time, because of population growth, the overall footprint of the continent has tripled over the past 40 years. And it's, it's absolutely their right to develop, absolutely. But it does mean that those planetary boundaries will get stretched. And in Africa, Africa is, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, Joel, but 
I've only lived in North Africa, so my, my understanding is very limited. Uh, but 66% of Africa is dry land and drought-stressed. Climate change is going to exacerbate that. The famine that is going on currently in East Africa is caused by a whole range of factors, civil unrest, political challenges, etc., etc., and the presence of terrorist groups such as Al-Shabaab, which is its equivalent in northeast Nigeria is Boko Haram, which literally means end education. But climate change is a factor. The UN has stated that. And population growth is a factor. It is only going to get more challenging if there are billions more people on the planet and millions more people in Africa. Don't take it from me. I met a wonderful colleague of, of Joel's called uh, Alaya Zulu, who works for the... Uh, African Institute for, for Development in, in Nairobi. He's actually a Malawian by birth, and I met him at a G8, G20 conference. And he was the most uh, civilized man, and it was a wonder to hear somebody from his continent speak so rationally and intelligently. And he, he was quite open about the, the, the population growth that was predicted for Malawi, his home um, country, which is currently about 15 million, going up to 50 million by 2030 and possibly 100 million by the end of the century. He simply said, is that sustainable? No. So it's not, it's not just white, middle-class males like me wittering on about this. It is people from their own countries who are speaking truth and trying to deal with the challenges that face future generations. Because, as I said before, we are, we are reduced in terms of our wriggle room and our capacity and our resilience to absorb what's going to come. Never mind Trump, never mind Boko Haram, but just think about what climate change is bringing. It is happening now and is making real impact on people's lives. And it's the poorest who suffer first and most. Joel, I'd like you to come back on that if you um, want to. Yeah, th thanks very much. For you. Um, look... Uh, Yes, climate change is a factor, and it is affecting large parts of the African continent, and we shall probably suffer even more from that. But I remain an optimist, you see. I, I keep telling people, 25 years ago, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter did not exist. I am on the African continent at least once a month. I've just come back from Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, and... What do I see? The use of these products. I see the way that um, I talk to people in, in uh, Nairobi and they tell me about the latest apps they're developing to be able to track crop development, to be able to change their lives. So in other words, what you have is the taking the technology that has been uh, brought up to be able to live their lives and improve their lives now. So if you have that, then you must, be, you must be optimistic. And I see this right across the African continent. So to think that you know, doom is going to come, you know, we're, we're what? Almost a billion people in a continent that is many times the size of Europe? Come on. Yeah, this must be music <laughs> to your ears. Oh, yes, it is. And I think it's incredibly important to get the, the Ugandan perspective because it's always so easy to think that there are too many of somebody else. That's the history of, yeah. of the yeah. overpopulation debate. In India, it was the higher castes who said that, oh, we've got too many of the, the poor ones. They are the ones who should be sterilized. In Peru, we had the uh, Spanish descendants who said that, oh, it's too many uh, Peruvian Indians. And, and today we have a Western uh, debate who says there are too many Africans. Well, you know what? That's not what, what people say in Africa. Instead, 
It's more about the access to knowledge, to science, to technology, opening up institutions. I find it so interesting that, I think it's 10 years ago or something like that, The Economist magazine had a cover story um, (laughs) talking about the hopeless continent, (laughs) Africa. Uh, Now suddenly seven of the fastest, ten fastest growing economists in the world are African. It was not resources that changed. It's not that suddenly we had a lot of fresh water or more minerals or more metals or anything like that in Africa. But we had more stable institutions that gave people more uh, freedom and safety in investing in their future, more education, more science, more technology. Mm -hmm. It's true there are still huge problems. And obviously uh, with... um, despotic governments with terrorists who ruin agriculture and so on, but that's a problem of over-oppression, not overpopulation. And those numbers are small, if I may say so, Fee. I gave you the figure. We do have um, uh, drought in quite a number of countries, but we also talk about a continent of 54 countries. Well, we're almost at the end of our debate, and I hope, listening at home, that we've provided you with a, a little bit more information and certainly an opportunity to question whether or not you want to stay uh, in your incumbent positions, be it optimistic or pessimistic. I think some very strong cases have been made on both sides, certainly the point about technology and just the sheer magic of it. Where could it take us in the next 20 or 30 years? It's a heartening thing when you think about that, but set against that, the sheer numbers that we've been talking about tonight and also the unwillingness uh, of many of us to think that it's our responsibility. I think that's something that has been quite persuasive from the pessimistic corner too. Uh, So, Johan and Robin, what would you think are your opponent's strongest arguments or the strongest arguments made by our expert witnesses? Robin, anything that's made you go... (laughs) Yeah, no, anybody who can't change their mind is like a sort of dinosaur and you're just going to you know say it's it's fantastic to have this dialogue and debate and and just sort of weigh up the 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 potential I mean I I am I am optimistic to a degree about technology but I'm just extremely concerned that we haven't actually got the time to enable it to make enough difference you know if, if you look at the science on climate and I think some of the most compelling views come from people who've actually looked down on the planet I mean if you if you hear some of the astronauts who've been up in the space station and looked down on the planet and are running those programs, when they see that thin, fragile, beautiful planet with this little veil of our atmosphere, and it is literally like a little veil, and everything else is dark space, and they can see the changes, they can map the changes, and they are deeply concerned about it. And then you have sort of marvellous techno-optimists who sort of talk about, we're going to colonise Mars. Well, Mars is sort of, you know, 55 million kilometres away. It's, as far as I'm aware, it's got sort of frozen ice caps at one end and the, the worst solar winds in the, in the galaxy in, in the middle and dry desert. The idea that we're going to go there and sort of leave our planet. We need to return to Earth. We need to return to this planet and live here sustainably and manage our population as we have managed every other species on the planet, willingly or unwillingly, if we are going to have a sustainable future. It is a dream to think that they're going to colonise Mars in any time soon that will benefit the vast majority of the world's poor. I can promise you it won't be on the first spaceships that Elon Musk and Tesla have created. You know, it'll be Bill Gates and the rest of them. And we'll be left going, oh, the planet's in trouble. Nobody's mentioned Mars tonight. Well, I have. <laughs>
that was none of our expert witnesses. You they read, said, don't you, have more children. You Think read carefully the news. about There's the numbers. There's a lot of stuff about going to Mars at the moment. Africa. And billions of pounds are being spent on this sort of futile, the next frontier. We wasted the West. We wasted Africa. We wasted Asia. We've stolen and plundered everything we can possibly get. So let's go off planet and do it. It's time to live sustainably. We can do it. We do have some of the technology. Do we have the time? Johan, is there anything that's made you want to change sides tonight? Well, I agree uh, with Robin that we're going to have to take care of Earth first before we colonize Mars. And uh, I think that the most important point I heard from, from you was that uh, pessimism is a springboard for optimism. And I think that's very much the way many of the greatest leaps that mankind has made has, has come about. Norman Borlaug, who is uh, one of our, both of our favorites, I, I think, um, who really, the man behind the Green Revolution, who saved the lives of perhaps one billion people. He didn't do it because he was a naive optimist who just thought everything will be great. He saw the problems and then he dealt with it with more knowledge, with more technology and so on. Now we're going to have to do the same thing when it comes to climate. I agree, that's one of the major issues. And we're going to have to deal with it not by stopping progress, because as we've heard, it's the poor, they're going to suffer the most. Not just from climate change, but also from everything else, from a lack of electricity, from a lack of, say, food supply. We need more growth, we need more technological improvement to save those lives and to deal with uh, with the climate in the future. And we do have solutions. It's not just some sort of um, imagination, science fiction. We've got it in the laboratories. We've got it in places. I've been to the Saharan Desert and looked at the Moroccan huge solar plants. And for every solar panel that they install, the price falls, drops a little bit more. We do have an unlimited supply of energy from the sun. One hour of solar power is enough to sustain all our energy needs for one year. So what we need is the technology, the ideas, the solutions to deal with it. Then we can have clean power as well. And who's going to do it? Well, I, for one, think it's, it could be that girl in South Africa who was born the last week and who'll get an education that's better than most people got in this country 100 years ago and who steps into a new world, a connected world, where she can use the, the accumulated knowledge of mankind and then add her eyeballs to those problems and her brain hard at work to do this. So people, they're the solution, not the problem. How many people do you think have been born since this program's come on air? <laughs> um, I'm sure you're going to tell me soon. What I would like to say is that every minute that we've talked, 100 people were raised out of extreme poverty. Well, that's a fact. I'm going to beat you with my fact, if that's okay. <laughs> that's so 10,000 new lives arrive on the planet every hour, and this is a 42-minute 30 program. I'm an arts graduate. I can't do that some. <laughs> but it's a lot, isn't it? Is there a danger, though, in your optimism, in putting your faith in the belief that somebody somewhere will solve the problem that means you don't take responsibility yourself. Because a lot of our discussion tonight has been about personal responsibility. It's there in Sarah's argument about actually thinking, is it right to carry on having more and more children on the planet? And also, it is there in what Joel's been saying as well, that you can't, you can't just say it's a problem over there. You have to think, I am part of this problem. I need um, to change my of own Of course, ways. We, we're all responsible for what happens to planet Earth and to the future generations. Uh, and we should all 
take, assume that responsibility. But what I'm saying is that we also have to be humble because we don't have all the solutions. None on this panel have all the solutions. So we need more people who are empowered with better education and with access to the and, world's and knowledge on and the, technology. on the subject of empowerment, the best technology we have, one of the most, most magical pieces of technology is birth control. We have the ability for women to take control of their, of their fertility, to not be overruled by patriarchal societies, to choose how many children they have, and it's available. It's not available to everybody because there are societies which, it's not just about access, there are societies which currently repress women, there are religions which repress women, and if we can make that technology freely available, we will enable people to get out of poverty, to be empowered, and to reduce pressure on the planet. So I'm all for that technology. 100% agreement at last. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm not sure, actually, that that's what we wanted in this yeah. programme. Joel, final <laughs> word, please, and then uh, I need an audience vote. I, I mean, yes. you, uh, you talked about the numbers of, of uh, children that have been uh, born in Africa, we celebrate birth. And for me, I just wanted to sort of big, give a big cheer and a big up to all those new babies that have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much indeed for that. Now, what we have to do is we have to see whether or not our, our 42 minute 30 thought experiment has actually worked on the audience here at the LSE this evening. So at the start of the evening, it was the shout of empty that rang out the loudest. There were more pessimists in answer to the proposition, a global population of 9 billion on the planet is sustainable. So if you still think that you're pessimistic, can you shout empty. If you feel more optimistic, you think, yay, more people, come hey, on. Hey, 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 you're, you're, you're biasing the vote there. <laughs> I'm not, and it's not a patriarchal studio, so I'll do what I want. It's a matriarchal. Then can you shout full? Who's positive? Well, I think that is a change from the beginning. I think that the full may actually have carried the evening here at the LSE. Uh, if you're listening at home, I hope that you might have heard something that's changed your position too, or at least made you think about how you've come to be in the position in the first place. And maybe as a merchandising opportunity, we should have T-shirts printed with glass half full on one side and glass half empty on the other, and we allow you the freedom of movement on any given topic. You could try it out next week when we're back here at the LSE debating the proposition, digital technology is making children's lives richer. I'd like to think... That I'd like to thank everybody here on the panel. Thank you, the audience, for coming. Thank you for listening at home. And join me, Fee Glover, at the same time next week for Glass Half Full. Thank you all very much indeed. Could you just, I'm so sorry, could you just hang in your seats for a second in case there are any retakes that need doing? And also, if we have questions for our panel, uh, I think we have just a couple. These... Yeah, we're going to have to do everything again. Yes, we've got to go from the top. Uh, we'll just take a couple of questions because I know that we have spent quite a long time debating, debating. So we go straight to the balcony. Yes, guy standing. Yes, go, go, go. Go for it. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, uh, it seems to me that uh, we've talked about uh, the population in the West being those who consume the more and in Africa those who consume, consume the less. I'm from Africa myself and it seems to me that there is an opportunity here to kind of create some form of trade. Uh, can it be done? I mean, 
I would like to hear from the, gen the gentleman on the panel down there. Joel. An opportunity, uh, if, let me just make sure that I, I understood it, an opportunity for sort of trade between, well, actually, um, there, there's several ways in which um, uh, the, the, this can happen. First of all, they talk, we talk very much about the demographic dividend, which is uh, what Africa has. 65% of Africans are under 30. So, and this, these are people who are going to sort of help transform the world, in my view, through technology, through education, and in many ways. Of course, we're also going to be generous as Africans, and uh, Africans are always generous people. So we're going to donate some to Europe. Uh, we're going to donate some to different parts of the world. So, you know, so please be optimistic. We are sort of, uh, as ever, going to be good to, to many parts of the world. Thank you for that question. Hello. Uh, I'm not sure if... Yes, it's on Yes, now. it's on. Um, just one quick point and one question. And one quick point is, um, in terms of migration, you were mentioning um, the chair... The greatest migrants ever in the history of the world are Europeans. 450 million people of European descent live everywhere across the earth. Nobody has even come close to doing that. So any context of any discussion about migration should start with that main yep, point. It's logged now, don't okay. worry. The greatest it'll it'll come out, ever. I'll claim it as my own. And the um, question... And the, the question I had... Uh, um, you mentioned the population count. At 6.30 p.m. today, the population of China was listed at 1,300,490,736 people. According, uh, that was a bunch of different um, sites. So the top 100 populated cities in China put together is 110 million people. The, where, may I ask you, are the other 1.2 billion people? I don't believe... By any stretch of the imagination, there are 7 billion people on this planet. Well, it's not a planet, but anyway, there's 7 billion people here. Not even close, and I don't know how. If you find out, if you research the, the foundations of population studies, who founded it, they were eugenicists. Okay, well, I... These are, the, the foundation for the statistics yes. are completely false. So we're false. taking our statistics so from, asking, from the United Nations. Is, yeah. Yeah, and I think if, if you want to have a conversation about the, the, uh, the legality of those institutions, we might have to do that another time if, it wasn't if, legality. if that's all right. I'm, asking, I'm suggesting that the, the statistics that people are working from okay. are completely false. Okay. And uh, the, foundation, okay. the foundation of population studies is from the same people that started the yeah. Eugenic Society. Well, David, I don't know whether you want to just say something just about uh, how valid our statistics are no, that we've that's used quite, that's quite a big, it's quite a big point, really. Um, no, I don't think I can start uh, justifying the UN statistics at this point. Okay. Uh, Cam, thank you for your contribution. I thank you for your contribution. Uh, does anyone else on the panel want to, to come back at that at all? We'll go to the lady who's there with the scarf. Hi there, thank you all for your time. I found it incredibly fascinating. Um, I just wanted to ask a question that I don't think everyone here really alluded to, probably given to the constraints of time. I think, you know, at least everyone in this audience can comfortably agree that population growth is a problem that needs to be tackled, whether you're an optimist or pessimist is, is, is beside the point. But one thing that I'm curious about is how do we actually create progress in addressing this issue given there seems to be a rise in populism as you alluded to with Trump etc where they're unwilling to acknowledge the problem. I, I would like to be an optimist because I do agree that you know with the rise of technology um, etc that there might be people that are willing to address these problems but equally I'm seeing many more people who are 
who'd rather bury their head in the sand um, and kind of continue consuming and leave it to somebody else. I'm just curious to see, to understand how those that are optimistic, I suppose, um, what you think is the right way to tackle this, given the, with the rise of alternative facts, et cetera, it isn't just that we need to, people, people are willing to, unwilling to acknowledge the problem at all. Yes, I, I take your point. Has the program helped, though? Yes, good. I, I, I mean, in, in terms of the sort of unexpected you know, challenges and, and shocks that the, the world faces, which, which derail demographic transition and derail progress, you know, we, have, we, we are having some pretty unpleasant ones at the moment. We know we've got a vote in Holland at the moment, which was always the most tolerant nation on earth, but appears to be, you know, skirting with some really dangerous um, ideologies. And similarly, you know, the, the fastest growing movement is not ISIL, it's actually fascism. You know, it, it's white supremacist Nazis in America. There's the American National so- Socialist Party, which is just a it's a Nazi party. And there's this, as they are mis... Which is why my job is so difficult. And because, you know, people immediately assume that you're lined up with these complete psychopaths, you know, who, who are, you know, have roots in eugenics and, and have, have no interest in the betterment of, of people or planet. They just have some warped ideology of their own. But they are growing fast and they're being played to by populist... Uh, politicians, and I think part of the problem is that politicians have not addressed population in the past, and it's a fact. And you know, even the Green Party, which I am a member, has no longer has an open borders policy because they've seen the statistics that in the UK about 80% of people believe that the country is overpopulated, and about the same proportion believe the world is overpopulated, and they feel very, very threatened. And then that unleashes some pretty unpleasant. Uh, Ideas. So unless we can start talking about it, as we are now, which is brilliant, but also we get our politicians talking about it. I mean, we ought to have a national population policy in this country because we are wildly overpopulated in terms of our ability to sustain ourselves. We, we have to plunder everything from around the world. London alone, it's food. To feed London, you ha- you'd have to use the entire agricultural area of the UK. Mm. So we're nabbing it from Africa and everywhere else. So w- we need a, po- a population policy. We haven't had one since 1973, and so does the rest of the world. Because it, that's how we can absorb... The, the genuine refugees and asylum seekers who deserve to be looked after and not be repelled at the borders. We have to say, we can sustain that. We, just like other African countries, can take people in because we've understood the balance rather than not talking about it and then allowing the likes of UKIP to start putting false figures out and despicable posters. Yep. Uh, Joan, you wanted to come back on that too. And then can I just warn our lovely stewards, we'll take one question up there in the balcony and then there's a guy down here in the white shirt and then we might have to stop. Okay. Johan, all yours. Okay, just briefly. Um, when it comes to specific things that the Trump administration is doing, which is bad like sort of cancelling family planning issues and so on, everybody else has got to step up. I'm, I'm a Swede. The Swedish government has just said, okay, we'll step up and we'll try to pitch in and make sure that other countries contribute just as much as the US did before. And I think domestically, uh, a lot of countries are going to have to deal with that as well. But the other thing is, I said that pes- pessimism can be a springboard for optimism. I also fear that pessimism can be a springboard for fascism. Because if people drown in the message that everything is hopeless and that the world is falling apart, if they never understand, if they never look at the facts, the history, the data that shows things like 
what's happened over the last 25 years. We've never seen this reduction in poverty that we've seen in the DCS. We've never seen this increase in, in the food supply for people all over the world. If we think that everything's on fire, what happens historically is that we trigger a fight-or-flight instinct in people's minds. They don't become constructive and think about how to solve problems. They want to fight, so they begin to arm and they kick out the immigrants, or they or it's flight. They build the walls, they build tariff barriers, and they build physical walls to keep people out. And I think we're there. It's partly because we have this media that's attacking us with bad news constantly. And it's not the journalists' fault. fault. It's our fault. It's what we're sharing constantly without thinking about whether it's true and whether it's relevant, if it's representative for what goes on in the world. And then combined with a certain stock of politicians who know that their way to power is to scare us to death mm. and to scare us about others and scare us so that we don't look people in the eye and think about the, them as fellow human beings, but as something else. Lovely. Uh, we'll take that last question from up in the balcony, then the guy in the white shirt down here. All right. Um, thank you very much. Um, a very interesting panel and a very, very interesting debate today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm from the Center for, of uh, Understanding Sustainable Prosperity. I'm working on a project with them in conjunction with Middlesex University. Um, I'm from Africa, of course, from Nigeria. And um, I've heard a very, very scary uh, statistics about Nigeria today, which is, well, you know, being projected to grow at, uh, as much as 400 million in a couple of years. Um, I'm very, very concerned about that. So I'm not really, really going to be asking a question per se, but actually I'm going to, con I mean, sort of like, say something and address something that um, you know you, you said, Sarah, and I'm sorry I, I, don't, I didn't get your name because I came in late. Okay, this jo is Joel. Joel. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. You, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing to be optimistic, yeah, as an African. But if we really look at the, I mean, the situation in Africa right now is really, really deplorable. I mean, and, um, and uh, in terms of um, infrastructures are really being stressed as a result of, I mean, the, even the current population. So if we are saying population is going to increase at that pace within that time frame, we don't even have the infrastructure to cater for the population we've got at present. And what is going to now happen when we grow that, that, that big? Because, I mean, we, sure. you know, you... Well, you, I think you that's sorry, a, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, I'm going to be done question. in a bit. No, but, yeah, gonna, a, but that's a good question yeah, in itself. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's, I suppose, yeah, Joel, it challenges okay. yeah, your optimism. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it, it doesn't challenge Can my just, optimism because... Um, I just want to get to this guy down here <sighs> as well. Okay. All right. No, no, this, All right. is, this is a good... This is good. This thank is you, good. thank you. It doesn't challenge my optimism at all for the simple fact that life is not a static. I mentioned the changes that have happened on the African continent in the last sort of 40, 50 years. Life expectancy has grown. The use of technology has made really changed things and the way we look at things. I'm in uh, Africa, as I said, at least once a month, you know, and I see the changes. And for me, what you say does not bear relationship to what I see on the continent. I'm in Nigeria in two weeks' time, and I, be, I go to Nigeria at least four or five times a year. It does not bear the same thing. This, when, because what I see on the ground are people who are industrious, people who are achieving people who are sort of looking for ways of changing and transforming their lives, building that infrastructure that you talk about. So if you compare just what there was five, ten years ago compared to what we have now, on the continent, for me, it is an upward trajectory, and I'm afraid I think that that's the way it's going to continue. Absolutely. Why not? 
Why not? We have a billion people. China alone has a billion. Africa is a lot, but is a lot bigger, and we only have less than a billion. So thank you, thank you. Do you know what? I just want to squeeze somebody else in before we actually lose the auditorium. There's a guy in a white shirt down here. The guy in the white shirt at the back. Yes. Can you? Can can we get a microphone? You've got one. You've got one. I Look think at it's that. Work. Is it working? No. It's is it working? Say. It's, I, it's I working it, now. It is. It is okay. Yeah. Uh, a question to Johan. Um, developments in technology obviously mean that we can tackle climate change a lot easier with increased renewable energy, etc. Except we have um, a man in charge of the most powerful country in the world who doesn't actually believe in climate change. Now, that means that climate change isn't really going to change that much. For instance, take sea level rise. Sea level rise in Bangladesh, uh, a rise of a few meters will leave 16 million people without their homes, reducing 17% of the land, making it uh, un um, uninhabitable. Effectively, how do we tackle that rising sea level rise, meaning reduced land, when we have a man in charge, of the most powerful uh, in charge of the most powerful country in the world who doesn't actually believe in climate change? Yes, it's yeah, a good well, point. That challenges my optimism, because I'm optimistic about the mankind, uh, not necessarily about Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> and I think that, uh, because obviously people can ruin good things, um, and I think he's about to do that. My optimistic take is that I don't think he lost even four years in that position. Um, but even if he did, I think that the most interesting things are going on elsewhere in the world. Um, I've seen it in the Saharan Desert. I see it in China. Uh, I see it all over the world where people are creating incredible technological solutions to this. It's about solar power. It could be the next generation of nuclear power. It's biofuels from algae. It's different solutions uh, with, with smarter grids. Uh, and it, there are things like, I mean, we do have the technology to get CO2 out of the atmosphere if we want to. It's very expensive, but we can do it. What do you do if something is too expensive? Well, you don't stop development on this level. But instead, you hope for more economic development so that we have high, more purchasing power and more technological development to get it uh, down in price. And that's what makes me an optimist. I've become a pessimist when I spend time with politicians because they're all saying that, oh, everything is incredibly difficult and it'll take a long time. I always become an optimist when I meet the entrepreneurs and the scientists because they've got the solutions. So far, they're too expensive. But hey, so were the cell phones 20 years ago as well. Sarah, as our American on the panel, do you want to tackle this one too? <laughs> I think Donald Trump will probably be in office eight years. But that's not what I was going to say. I mean, I didn't think he'd win the election. So what I wanted to say is about technology. I don't quite understand all the optimism about technology because people who create technology are driven by profit. And generally, profit comes from growth. So people like Trump, people who are really interested in business, tend to be the people who most oppose even a steady population because they won't make as much money. So I don't know how much they're going to invest in green technologies. And if they do, such as hybrid cars and electric cars, it's not clear that most people will buy those. In the United States, it's like 3% of the market because everyone thinks there's no problem. So if there is no seen need for these things and no profit in making them, they won't be developed. Can I just ask the gentleman uh, who asked the question, um, I'm presuming with my bad eyesight that you're uh, quite a young person, uh, and I wonder whether you feel optimistic that actually 
um, opposition to people like Donald Trump will uh, get a generation out of a complacent mindset and therefore might actually stimulate change more than my generation did, actually. I think there's a, there can be a mindset gap where we thought that things would get sorted and the world was on a more positive trajectory. You know, you're facing up against something now. Do you feel that? Well, I think even if, even if say, Donald Trump were to go in a year or two, sea level rise would not stop. No. It'll still occur, despite... But will you and your cohort be more prepared to do something to affect that change? I mean, of course, like... I don't want to pin it all on you, because I can, I can see that would be unfair. <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? We're here in a fantastic university, you know, one of the top 20 in the world. I mean, if people like you can't grasp it and change it, then aren't we all a little bit stuffed? The, um, just coming back on the technology point, the best technology available for stripping carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere are our natural ecosystems and biodiversity, our forests, our oceans and our soils. And they're all in trouble. It, it, it's a good, it, there is some good news that forest um, uh, destruction has, has reduced by about 50% since the 1990s. But it is still declining forest cover. We lost an area about the size of South Africa over the past decade or so. So it, it, we're still going in the wrong direction. And plantation forests are not as complex and biodiverse and effective as, as carbon strippers as natural boreal forests or particularly tropical rainforests, etc., etc. Our soils are in big trouble. The United Nations Environment Programme has calculated that 50% of our current arable soils will be unusable by 2050. These are the sort of statistics which make me weep at my desk because nobody seems to be doing anything about it. And, and it isn't going to be solved by high-yielding varieties with more applications of fertilisers which are produced by fossil fuels or more applications of, of agrochemicals produced by fossil fuels or applications of phosphate, which is a rock mineral, which is in which is in decline. There's probably about 30 years left of it. Asimov described it as the sort of bottleneck of life because it's the key ingredient that farmers need in their sort of NPK. So we are heading some real, real limits. So we need to get our ecosystems working for us as best as they can. The other ideas are frankly capped in bonkers. It's sending huge umbrellas up into space to reflect sunlight or, or, or spreading iron filings into the oceans to see if it will increase their absorption of carbon dioxide. These are mad ideas. They, they are sort of coming out of Gulliver's Travels, where he, he lampooned the Royal Society for trying to extract sunlight from cucumbers. I mean, solar power, yes, there's some great opportunities, and that's where people like Tesla and Elon Musk are doing fantastic work. And the, and the bottleneck there has been storing energy. So he's doing incredible work on battery technology. But the reason I mention Mars is because he's going in two ways. One is trying to improve renewable energy. Two is thinking... I'm not sure we're going to do it, so we better colonise Mars now. Now, if somebody of his intelligence, you know, a genius, really, and his capacity to change things is thinking like that, that really worries me. At the moment, you can go up to the Siberian tundra, you can poke a hole in the permafrost, and you can put a gas flare above the ponds that, admit, that, that are there, and you'll get a methane flare. We are already really accelerating climate change by the things we are doing and not doing to, to, to prevent it. So I, I, I am pessimistic, and I remain pessimistic, and I, and I fear that the part of your whoop for optimism 
was because actually most of you do not like talking about population issues because you think you're imposing and prescribing, as, as Joel rightly said, values on other countries. It's not true. We're all in this together. We are all in this together. Uh, tiny brief, one, really tiny, because we've got three retakes to do. To we're why I'm still an optimist. For the third year in a row, CO2 emissions have been almost flat around the world. Not because politicians have done things, but because technology is developing. The other thing is about phosphate. It's true, we have some problems with phosphate, but do you know what scientists tell me? The phosphate in an individual human being's urine is almost exactly what that individual needs for growing his own food. So very good on compost. Speaking, I'll give you that. speaking <laughs> very good on compost. Speaking Gulliver's <laughs> yeah. Travel. Yeah. There, okay. are, there are real solutions of dealing yeah. with that in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. We can extract it from well, urine. We're not, okay. doing, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. If you start girl. talking about needing to go for a wee, everybody will leave because they'll all <laughs> think it applies to them. We have three retakes to do, and then you can all go home. Please, please be patient. Be patient. Don't switch your mobile phones back on. Uh, Joel, we need to do just my introduction to you and your, the first part of your answer, just because your microphone was too far away. That's our fault, not yours, so here we go. Oh, no, it'll be simple. It'll, be so, you'll remember, it'll come back to you. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. Here we go. What was the question? It's coming. As a business person, financial journalist, and a former director of the African Development Bank, you are very well placed to talk about that link between demographics and economic opportunities. So we've talked a lot already about Africa's population and the huge growth rate. Do you fear that or do you welcome it? I absolutely welcome the, the growth in population in Africa. After all, we're, we're less than a billion people, just getting to a billion people, and look at the size of the African continent. Why else would, would anybody worry? I just, and secondly, I, do, I just hate this notion of uh, other people prescribing what we should be doing on the African continent. We use very few of the resources, of the world's resources, and yet somehow we're supposed to change our behavior to accommodate you. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so this one uh, is, Johan, it's uh, your first answer. It just needs to be a little bit briefer, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, what, what's Hang it on. about? No, I'm going <laughs> okay. to ask you. No, don't worry, don't worry. Here we go. So time to introduce our optimist tonight. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, a documentary maker and best-selling author, and his most recent book is called Progress, Ten Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. So not much doubt that you're a dyed-in-the-wool enlightened liberal optimist now, but I think you had a bit of an anarchic phase, didn't you? Oh, yes. As a student, I belonged to an anarchist group, and I was really a card-carrying pessimist who th thought that there were good old days in the past, and we should return to it. Absolutely brilliant. We'll pick it all up from there. Here we go. Tonight at the London School of Economics and Political Science and in front of your ears at home or wherever you're listening, we discuss the proposition that a global population of 9 billion people is sustainable. 9 billion at least is the projection for the global population by the middle of this century. It currently stands at 7.4 billion. Thank you. And one final one, which is totally my bad. Sarah, I couldn't pronounce the name of your college, so I just didn't mention it, and that's not good enough. How do I pronounce it? Bowden. Bowden. Okay. That's why it's so difficult. It is, isn't it? Because it's got a silent W and a silent I in it. So here we go. 
So Sarah Connolly is a professor of philosophy at Bowdoin College and has some pretty controversial views about population growth. Significantly, her recent book is called One Child, Do We Have a Right to More? Not only is she very pessimistic about current approaches to dealing with it, she also argues that we only have the right to one child. Sarah, what would the moral argument be for what is quite an extreme approach? You don't have to answer. Final thing... Uh, a polite reminder, at the end of the event it says, uh, please notify members of the audience that there's a book signing, isn't there? Who's got books to sign? Yay! Yay! Uh, so, uh, Johan and Sarah will be outside if you'd like to buy copies of their books and have them personally signed. In the meantime, can I say that you've been the best audience yet. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Good night.